Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some well, I thought was going to be bad news for the uh, the Doug Ford government. Uh, with uh, finally putting some numbers to some of the concerns people had about canceling the cap-and-trade program. Uh, yesterday, of course, we got uh, word that uh, the cost is going to be in the uh, area of, well, $3 billion. And that's the word from the Financial Accountability Office. His name is Peter Weltman. says the lost revenue from cap-and-trade will be greater than the savings the government would achieve by canceling the spending associated with the program. Uh, he also estimates, by the way, that in the long run, the cap-and-trade program would have cost Ontario families less than the federal carbon tax, which is going to come into play. Uh, well, <laughs> interesting to see the uh, the reaction from the government on this, and certainly the reaction from an awful lot of people that are uh, feeling as if this is uh, the wrong move to make. Travis Downraj is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Travis, good morning. Thanks for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Yeah, certainly uh, some interesting findings by the FAO yesterday. We, uh, I mean, we, we tried to talk to the finance minister and we got the same message that uh, the Ford government is going to be putting money back into the pockets of Ontarians. Yeah, I know. I saw, uh, I guess it was Rod Phillips, the environment minister, made that comment. So clearly those were the talking points they were all told to, to, to gather to because you're really getting the same message from everybody here, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Vic Fidelli came out uh, afterwards as well. And, and, you know, we asked, okay, well, are more programs going to be cut? What is going to happen? Where are you going to make up this $3 billion hole that the FAO now says that you're going to have? And he said, well, we'll have more information on that in the fall economic statement. That's going to be coming out later. No real specifics. Well, for, I mean, so, for a government that, that's made a big deal, and I think justifiably so, about the size of the deficit. I mean, they've even struck a special committee to investigate that. Uh, I, I'm not hearing any of the ministers that were talking yesterday, Travis, mention about the fact that, yeah, by the way, we just increased that deficit by $3 billion. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when you when you look at uh, what they're doing with the carbon tax as well, they're spending money there because they're going to spend upwards of $30 million to, to fight that in court. And as you mentioned uh, off the top, FAO saying that uh, in the long term, cap and trade would have cost less than dealing with the, the, the carbon tax, right? This is interesting, and I know that opposition parties always love to get these reports from people like the Auditor General uh, or the Financial Accountability Officer, because invariably they, they take all the, the rhetoric away, and it's just a bare-bones thing about numbers. Uh, the sitting government doesn't like to hear from these people, do they? No, absolutely not, because it throws a little bit of a monkey wrench into their plan. Uh, you know, we also pressed Phillips yesterday on kind of what is, the climate change plan for Ontario. They're scrapping cap and trade. Uh, they're fighting the feds on a carbon tax, which will likely be imposed. And all legal experts say, you know, this this court case uh, that we'll likely have, it, you know, the, the, the feds will win on that. And constitutional experts that we've talked to as well say that they are going to win. Um, but, but there is no plan right now. Uh, and the environment minister says that they are developing something and that we'll, they'll have more to say on that coming as well. We talked to, you know, the Green Party's Mike Schreiner, who says that either they're going to make up this $3 billion by raising taxes or cutting spending on things like health care, uh, education, transit. So there are some legitimate concerns there. And this is a government who campaigned on saving the taxpayers' money. 
Uh, so $3 billion is, is certainly a lot. Well, and it, by the way, you talked about cuts, and, and I know that the government doesn't like to talk about that, but uh, as, as we discovered, and we talked to some of the municipal folks here in the Hamilton area, uh, the minute that the Ford government announced that they were going to cut this, they also, by the way, said, uh, by the way, you're not getting the funding from cap-and-trade, and that was supposed to be going towards uh, improved transit for cities like Hamilton and Toronto, uh, uh, infrastructure repairs for uh, social housing, uh, that's not coming anymore, and also uh, for money for the school boards, of course, for some of the dilapidated schools. And I know you guys at Global have been reporting about that. We certainly have the same problem here in Hamilton. All of a sudden, that funding source has dried up, so it's already had an impact on us. Well, you know, and, and, and this is the big question, right? I mean, they're not going to pull a rabbit out of the hat when it, when it comes to finances here, and they say that the, the, the Liberals left the cupboards bare, so there's another problem. On that side of things, but Vic Fidelli, the finance minister, who we pressed yesterday, says everything will become clear once we see the fall economic statement, which is coming uh, in December. So perhaps they have some plans in place. We don't know what those plans are right now, but they're doing things, you know, um, like last week I was covering a story on uh, the Ford government cutting a tax on, on beer. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Three cents per liter per beer. So, I mean, that's not, that's not going to save the average beer drinker a whole lot of money. Um, when it comes to the average cost of cutting cap and trade, um, that's going to cost every household an additional about $312 by 2022. By the way, this report, and, and we need to clarify this for our listeners, uh, that came out of the uh, the FAO here, uh, is only talking about the lost revenue. I, I know that you guys have been reporting, and you talked about this right from the beginning, Travis, uh, about the possibility of lawsuits when this program was canceled by all the businesses that have already invested money into this. We haven't heard anything about that yet, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Yeah, it certainly doesn't mean that that's going to happen. And, and this government um, is facing lawsuits on and entering into lawsuits on a number of different, uh, you know, uh, departments here. Um, as I mentioned, you know, they're, they're, they're fighting with beds. They think that going in with Scott Moe uh, and possibly with other provinces uh, on fighting with beds on the carbon tax, they're going to be successful. But that could just end up costing $30 million. So they're certainly spending a lot of money on litigation here, and that is not saving taxpayers any money. Yeah, we're just, we're at this point anyway, focusing on some of these environmental issues that uh, that you and I are talking about. But you're right. I mean, the, the lawsuits here, I mean, they range all the way from the the, the basic income program. Uh, there's a number of different things that are going on here right now. There's, these guys are going to find themselves in court an awful lot in the next little while. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it, it is a major concern. But, but as we have talked about on this show before, uh, Mr. Ford has uh, a plan, and he, you know one of the things that I, I pushed Schreiner on, saying that he, he campaigned on scrapping cap and trade. He was not ever supportive of a, a carbon tax imposed by the federal government. So he, in some ways, has a mandate to do what he's doing. Right? He, he has a strong majority, uh, and, and so the people of Ontario voted the PCs in with that mandate. And, and he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Except for the, the, the point that you've talked about, and we talked with Alan Carter and a number of other folks that have been trying to get answers during the campaign, is they said, well, what are the details? What's it going to cost? What are the ramifications? They, they didn't answer any of that during the campaign. Now we're starting to get some of those numbers. And i got to wonder if there's a whole lot of folks out there right now that say, maybe maybe we should have stuck with what we had. Yeah, well, they, they're, they're short on details. Uh, you know, that's strategic, right? Because that gives them a lot of leeway and a lot of breath to to do 
what they what they want to do. I mean, you, you look at, I know we're talking about the environment here, but, you, you know, you look at city council, he never really campaigned on that, but that was under the guise of, well, you know, that's going to save taxpayers dollars as well. So, I mean, by not putting out a ton of details, uh, not putting out a fully costed platform, I mean, you know, he's doing what he wants to do and checking off that list. Uh, and, and he's not making any apologies for it. Well, and and that's how you play politics. And you've been covering this long enough to know that that's the way the game is played, uh, is that they'll introduce anything and simply say, look, at the, you know, this is the part of our mandate and we want to do this. But it's not as if they went to everybody that voted for the for the, the PCs and said, uh, is it because of cap and trade? Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, I would venture to say that an awful lot of the people that voted for the PCs just wanted Kathleen Wynne gone. Uh, and they didn't much care what the other policies were, but now we're starting to see some of those policies and see some of the financial benefits, or actually maybe not benefits as far as the, this particular program is concerned. Well, and you make a you make a great point because you know I, I have talked to a lot of political watchers who say that you know uh, Mr. Ford was not voted in as much as Kathleen Wynne was voted out, and, and so you know he has to be cognizant of that fact. Um, but, you know, he, he's still fighting the feds on a, a number of issues, uh, and he, he feels as though that is resonating with his base. He's also um, having a lot of these rallies. We saw that 100-day rally uh, a couple, I guess that was last week, yeah, yeah. Um, where he celebrated, you know, a, a number of achievements, and scrapping cap-and-trade was on that list. Yeah, and, and that's very reminiscent. I know some people cringe when we start talking about comparisons between Doug Ford and Donald Trump. And, and by no stretch are we talking about personal elevators, but we're still talking about, about style. And, and that seems to be the new normal now, isn't it, Travis? It's, you don't win office and then start governing. You continue to com- campaign, and that's what Ford seems to be doing, and that's taking a page out of the Donald Trump playbook. And you know what? I, I, I asked him about, we were in Washington, D.C., when he was uh, you know uh, down there to get a handle on the NAFTA or USMCA negotiations. Uh, and, and I asked him about that. I said, listen, you know, I know that you don't like this question, but a lot of people compare you to the president of the United States. Um, what do you think about what he's doing with America? And he said, you know, um, personal shortcomings aside, you look at the American economy and the American economy is great. So I think he's doing a fantastic job. So I, I think, you know, he does, a bit of a page from 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 that side of things and also he's very bombastic i mean he's not as extreme in, in terms of some of the rhetoric as donald trump but certainly when it comes to the rallies and when it comes to you know not backing down on certain things he he is uh somewhat like donald trump there's going to be a, an interesting uh, uh, analysis of exactly what their policy is going to be. And I know yesterday when you were pressing the environment minister, he said they're going to roll this out. And Vic Fidelli talked about rolling out the financial plan, et cetera. But there aren't too many decks or cards left in that deck when you look at it, Travis. I mean, just about everybody who's tried to do something about climate change, it's either some variation in cap and trade or, of course, a carbon tax. Uh, as to where that money goes, I guess it depends on the jurisdiction. But uh, the comment that, uh, and you guys carried this uh, on, on Global News at 5.30 last week, uh, where f- they asked the Premier about this, and he says, well, I'm just going to encourage people to cut their emissions. And, and somebody uh, in the crowd said, well, you know, what if they don't? Well, I'll go have a talk with them, yeah. uh, which sounds a lot more like Don Corleone than somebody who's concerned about the environment. So I, 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 I interviewed him again last week, I think it was, when he was in Calgary. He was out there for... A rally with Jason. He went. He met Scott Moe in in Saskatchewan. Then he went to Alberta to to meet with Jason Kenney, 
uh, the conservative leader out there, not the premier, Rachel Notley. He didn't sit down and meet with her. <laughs> he met with, yeah, that's, uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he, he, he was there for, to fight the carbon tax rally. And I said to him, I said, you know, um, what are you going to do here on the environment? And he said, well, Travis, I ran a business for a very long time. And I think businesses and corporations in this province can really um, keep themselves in check. But there will be, I said, is there going to be a cost for polluters? He says, absolutely, but it's going to be the big polluters and not the little guy. And, and it's interesting that all of this comes on the heels of this recent UN report, which found that if the world does not do more to fight climate change, uh, we're going to be in a, a climate disaster type situation in 12 years. The other element to this, as, as you guys have talked about, is the imposition of the federal plan. And I, I don't know what uh, what Mo and, and, and Ford and, and others are planning on doing uh, from a legal standpoint. They say they're going to challenge this, uh, but they'd have to get a stay of the implementation of this. And But if, if we get nine or ten months of, of, of the federal plan and Canadians start getting those rebate checks that uh, they keep talking about, I don't know if it's going to happen, but that's the promise. you got to wonder just how much support Ford's going to get for just saying, look, we don't want anything to do with this. It's going to happen anyway. Well, and that, and that, I think, might be a calculation which is going on in the background, right? I mean, you know, his advisors are probably telling him, listen, we probably, and I don't know this for, I mean, this is just speculation, but he could very well know that, that they don't have a legal leg to stand on. And constitutional experts that we have talked to have said, you know, the federal government has a right to impose taxation. Uh, and so he could very well know that he's going to lose this, but politically, it makes him look like he's standing up to Justin Trudeau. He's standing up to, to the guy that's going to impose this big, bad carbon tax, and that could resonate with a lot of people. So it could be, uh, you know, a political, um, uh, you know, strategy here. The, the interesting dynamic here, of course, uh, is, is that what they've done is taken this issue and, and made it about taxation and not about the environment. And, and, uh, and obviously, like you say, their, their base is eating it up. Well, that, 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 that's exactly what's getting lost in all of this, is the environment. We're talking about um, taxation, we're talking about financial figures, but, you know, environmental groups point to the fact that, you know, that there's no plan right now. There's a promise of a plan, there's no plan. What, what is going to be um, the, the plan to, to reduce carbon? And, and we still don't know that at this point. Travis, you've been all over this file for the last little while, and I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this today. Thanks so much. Absolutely. It's hot legalization day, not exactly. We'll be covering for Global News at 5.30. Yeah, I guess everyone else will, too. It's, it's the story. But we know this is dollars and cents, and it's going to have an impact on property taxes and everything else. So, And you've, and you've covered all that. Really appreciate it. We'll be watching for you at 5.30 tonight. Thanks again. Bill, as always, appreciate it. Take care. Travis Donrange, of course, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What everyone is concerned about, of course, is a parole hearing today for Paul Bernardo. Uh, it was 25 years since Bernardo was convicted of first-degree murder in the deaths of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Uh, and now he is having a parole board hearing. And uh, it, some of the comments I've seen on social media, people are outraged by this. Uh, it was part of the sentence 25 years ago, so we knew this date was coming. Uh, some are suggesting that, uh, that well, he shouldn't be allowed. He's going to walk out of here. I, I think that's highly unlikely. Uh, to try to get some clarity on, on what's going on and why it's going on, uh, we want to bring Jeff Manishin into the conversation, criminal lawyer with Ross and McBride here in town, and of course a former Crown attorney as well. Jeff, I'm glad you had some time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Certainly. The, the outrage is well-founded. I, I, I relived this when I knew this was coming up. We, ca- we cover this story extensively, of course. I talked to both the French and Mahaffey families. 
Uh, we talked with the investigating officers. It's something that I'm, I'm sure not just the French and Mahaffey families, but a whole lot of people in this community uh, are still very upset about. It was one of the most gruesome uh, stories I think anybody has ever covered. Uh, but notwithstanding that, uh, this is part of the process, isn't it? Certainly. I mean, and if we compare it to the states, you'll recall, I think, Sirhan Sirhan has applied for parole. So did Charles you know, Manson, over the years, and, and so did Charles Manson. I mean, the concept of a potential eligibility for parole means you get to have a parole hearing. And, and, and period, end of sentence. This is not getting soft on crime. This is part of the judicial process and part of the, uh, of the, the criminal justice system. That's correct. And, and it's, it's for that reason. I mean, when you have a, um, you know, a situation where if somebody's involved in multiple acts of murder and you can have a longer period of time for parole ineligibility, okay, so, so uh, you know, it, it might it be 75 years, as we've seen recently, or 25 plus 25 plus 25. That's 75 years before parole eligibility, okay? For Bernardo, at that time, it was first-degree murder, and it was life imprisonment. And it's no eligibility for parole till he served twenty five years. Because in those days, eligibility for parole. Because in those days, they were all concurrent sentences. That's right. So uh, he was never going to get more than twenty five before he was going to be eligible. Yeah, that's right. So, so that's why this process is unfolding. Yeah. Now, talk to us a little bit about the process, Jeff. What is going to be happening? Well, how it works, it's there's a hearing, and I think it's three. I've never actually candidly, Bill, I've never done a parole hearing, but I'm generally familiar with it. Hearing is held at the deta- at the at the penitentiary, and the parole board of Canada has its representative there. I think it's a three person panel, and they get the decision. You know, they get the discretion to decide whether the person should or shouldn't be granted parole, and they consider the risk that the offender might present to society if released. They'll determine if and to what extent that risk can be managed in the community, and the overriding consideration is protection of society. So there's a huge difference between being eligible for parole and getting parole, and loads of people who apply for parole don't get it. So the hue and cry saying, oh, gee, he's going to get parole. No, how it'll work, too, uh, the, the family members of the victims are op- given the opportunity to kind of be heard and put their position forward. I think it's something you and I have talked about in the past yeah, yeah. from the standpoint of victim impact evidence, and that's a change. It didn't used to happen that they got that opportunity to be heard, but that's been permit- permitted. And remembering that the the parole board isn't considering expressly the impact that the crimes had on the families of the victims in addition to the victims, but it's still their perspectives, and I'm sure they'd still live in, in fear about the concept of him potentially being released, and so would the community at large. And he'll be represented by counsel and uh, the parole board. Their particular concern, Bill, and I think one of the reasons maybe I haven't done parole hearings, I've always been of the understanding their real concern, they're really interested in hearing from the offender. They don't hear from the lawyer. It's not a lawyer so much making submissions. They want to deal with direct, uh, directly addressing the offender, and they want to understand any indications of remorse, any in, insights into how and why the offense was committed, and how the institutional record, you know, the individual's been in the institution, and what their potential release plan is, and try and determine. And, you know, I've heard the phrase criticized the issue of a manageable risk. But anybody who's offended, committed a serious criminal offense, one can say, gee, there is a potential risk of reoffending. There's no 100% guarantee they won't reoffend. But the concept of parole, there would be a parole officer responsible for providing supervision for the offender, potentially released into the community. But it doesn't happen. I mean, Carla Hamolka, you may or may not recall, she wound up being eligible for parole, didn't apply, came up at the level of mandatory supervision after she, she was for t- 
two after having served two thirds of her sentence, she got gated and served her full term. Mm-hmm. She went to warrant warrant expiry. So for parole specifically for Bernardo, and we're dealing with the life sentences and parole eligibility or ineligibility. That's what we've been talking about. Now I, I've talked in the past uh, with some members that actually served on parole boards, and, not, and they're they're retired, long retired, but. Uh, you've watched something up that's rather interesting. You mentioned that uh, both the French and Mahaffey families are going to be making uh, victim impact statements uh, at this hearing today. Uh, but you also said that the, the pri- primary goal should be, uh, obviously, this, the public safety. Is is there a balance? Is there a ratio there? Because, I mean, the gravity of the crimes, I assume, is still has to be weighted here, uh, which is why they're allowing the families to speak. But how much weight does that actually carry when they're making the determination? Well, I think what we would look at, Bill, um, is to the extent that they're identifying the potential risk to public safety, will characterize it that the experiences of victims and their families can be weighed in, in the overall mix of that. It's not a mathematical type of exercise. It's, it's would we call it holistic, would we call it an overarching, we're taking a look at the full picture, the offender, his institutional performance, but also what the crimes were. And it's been said sometimes, Bill, the best predictor, predictor of future performance is past performance. When you've involved in acts as horrific as this, the potential for harm that could be created by uh, a recurrence of this behavior would really cause the parole board to be exceptionally concerned about that. This isn't somebody who broke a window, and this isn't somebody who was involved in the drinking and driving accident. This is much more than that. Uh, he's serving right now for the deaths of, of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Uh, but we do know that uh, that there was a lot more to it. I mean, the, you know, the death of, of Hamolka's sister, uh, certainly the the Scarborough rapist stories, uh, which of course we didn't find out until sometime after the arrests were made, uh, that there was a connection there. Does that get weighted into this decision too? Even not though he right. may not be serving time for that. Well, no. In fact, Bill, he is. He is. You may not recall it, but he pled guilty to the Scarborough rapes and was found to be a dangerous offender. Under the criminal code. And what does so, that, what does so that designation look, mean now? We'll talk about that, okay, because that's, again, something that doesn't get, let's characterize it as adequately covered or, or reflected here. Um, in certain respects, Bill, uh, uh, the idea of a dangerous offender, uh, that status is determined after there's evidence from psychiatrists that is presented to a judge, and a judge, for his, when a judge makes a finding that the individual has been involved in a series of offenses where uh, he or she has uh, not controlled his conduct in the past and there's a real risk he won't do he, he won't control it in the future that's an indeterminate period of sentence in a penitentiary and the person it, it basically has a review of that it's got to be at least 7 years from the day on which they're taken into custody and uh, there's a review thereafter every 2 years to review if the person should or shouldn't be granted parole and so, in, for, in relation to uh, Mr. Bernardo, um, he, he would have had reviews. He actually, I think his dangerous offender, his sentence for that was before 1977. He actually would get a review every year. So, unless I'm mistaken, Bill, they, the parole board would have already been looking at his situation, could have been looking at his situation from a dangerous offender status in the past. They may not have had to, having regard to the fact that he's doing 25 before he's eligible at all. But, Bill, this is the key, is when they are looking at his potential parole eligibility for the the two murders, they will undoubtedly be aware of the Scarborough rapes and the dangerous offender status. 
So if there was any question about him potentially being able to get get out because of the French and Mahaffey murders, well, when you add the dangerous offender and the Scarborough rapes into the mix, what does it tell you when I use that phrase, concern for protection of society and a review of the behavior? Well, obviously there's a, there's a conflict there, isn't there? Well, the way I'd put it is a compounding effect. Yeah, absolutely. It's not conflict, it's a compounding effect. So, so to some extent, I mean, I can understand the public's concern over the fact that he is having this parole hearing. Okay, and, and by the way, he doesn't have to apply for it. There are people who are in there for a period of time that might say, I'm not going to seek parole. You don't have to apply for parole, but he's eligible, so he is applying. But, but how much time is it going to take for the parole board to try and determine for somebody who's really one of the very worst offenders that we've ever had in the criminal justice system, with a pattern of behavior that was found to render him dangerous by a judge, together with these two horrific murders. I mean, realistically, what's the potential that he'll get out? I, I, w- I would like to think slim and none. And, and slim just left town. As exactly. Yeah, oh, as, yeah. yeah. So, so I appreciate the, the public concern, but if, as you raise, he's, it's a matter, he's entitled to it as a matter of law, fine. Uh, but, but I think that it's a very overwhelming case to suggest that he will not get out. And, and I, <clears throat> I, I feel sorry for the families because I know they're going to relive this. And as I say, when they go and make their statements again today, uh, it's, it's going to open <coughs> old wounds, that, which are probably never going to go away. True. Uh, so it's got to be very difficult for them. But it's, it is part of the process. And we've seen other violent offenders. I mean, you know, Robert Pickford, Clifford Olson. I mean, the, the list goes on of people that you knew darn well were never going to get out. But according to the system, they are allowed to apply for it. Some do, some don't. Sure. And, and Bill, you know, an option. And, of course, you know, every, it's open for families of victims to consider what they do and don't want to do, okay? And they're entitled to be able to have that opportunity to be heard. You know, it, the option could have been for them to provide a written statement that could simply be presented. They don't have to. There's no requirement that they attend. From the standpoint of evaluating whether anything they say would or wouldn't realistically make a difference, you know, it may well be that, somebody advising them to say, look, he's not getting out anyway. You don't have to. If it's too stressful for you, it's too emotionally challenging, and I would respect that. You don't have to be there. We'll find another way to get your message there. But if they say, no, we feel we have to, they're entitled to be there, that's fine. And yeah, I think going along with that will be um, an enormous emotional stress. We're told by the uh, the lawyer that will be representing Bernardo that uh, that he will, at this hearing, uh, indicate that he will take full responsibility for his crimes and quote-unquote express remorse. Does that mean anything to anybody at this point? No, I wouldn't think so. I mean, that I'll put it this way, Bill, if he's going to go through the exercise of having a parole hearing, yeah, it's almost essential he's going to have to do that. But it will be for the parole board to really question that and really evaluate that. And, uh, you know, the fact that he pled guilty to the Scarborough rapes is, is a compelling piece to say, look, he accepted that responsibility. That's fine. And he, he did do that. But he pled not guilty at the, at the, uh, the trials involving French and Mahaffey. And, and sure, it's open for him to be able to, to accept responsibility. You know, the obvious first question any parole authority officer would ask, it's the one that I always am interested in. I would be if I was ever a judge, which isn't going to happen. But as a Crown defense counsel, why did you do it? Mm-hmm. Why did you do it? What went through your mind? How could you have thought and how could you have acted in the way that you did not once but twice? The level of planning and deliberation, the level of cruelty 
you know, a torture, though. I mean, the, the, all the circumstances of the offense. It's not just you feel badly for what you did. If I was a parole officer, I, to try and develop an understanding of his, quote, insight, unquote, into what's happened, I'd want to explore that. And the odds are pretty good. He's not going to be able to tell me anything that I'm going to say, oh, I see, okay, well, then that's acceptable. And it shows you developed an insight where you could get out. How probing are those questions going to be from the board? There's a discretion on the part of the parole officers. You know, I mean, they, they, can, they are the ones who have to be satisfied on identifying the issue of risk. And that's why I say to you, Bill, you know, and, and, and there's, a, there's a documentary series, a terrific documentary filmmaker named John Kastner has done some, uh, I think we're on CBC years back, on, I think it was the parole dance, something like that, on the whole parole process, showing parole hearings. So listeners that want to track that down, K-A-S-T-N-E-R, John Kastner is the name of the director. There are documentaries about the way it works, and certainly they want, they put questions to the offender directly, and, and the, it's what the offender says to them that's going to be an important part of their decision, and the offender has to understand that. Could you characterize it as, as grilling the, the individual? Well, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd use that phrase, Bill. It's, it, you know, it, it's, not, uh, it's not a cross-examination at a trial. But on the other hand, it certainly is. It's someone who is responsible for a decision on the issue of liberty has to feel satisfied that he or she has the answers that they're looking for on issues that are important. So you'll ask. But, you know, the hearings are not two and three days long or anything like that. You know, the hearings are shorter. I think they take like an hour, a couple hours at the most. And when is the uh, decision rendered on this? I guess the answer, that's a good question, the answer would be when the parole authorities are, are feel that they can reach that decision. I mean, it could well be they could make that decision the same day. Okay, they, if they felt they needed to reserve on it for a period of time, they potentially could. But, but it would be for them to decide. Like, like any case, like any hearing, there's no sort of strict time limit to say you have, to, you have an hour to think about it. No. They're the tribunal, and the, the issues would drive how long they do and don't need Do, do they retire to, to talk about this and make a decision? I, I don't think they'll discuss it in front of the offender. I think that they'll have the opportunity to be able to discuss it amongst themselves. Uh, yeah, our friend Susan Claremont from The Spectator just tweeted a little while ago. She's up there today, and of course, okay. uh, and uh, she said she expected to be there till about 3 o'clock, and this starts at 10, so... Uh, I guess that's uh, to make some leeway for some of the people that may be making statements on this as well. Yeah, sure. And, it, you know, I guess it, in terms of the amount of material that they need to cover and, you know, and so forth. As I say, Bill, I'm, I'm giving you just a very general understanding because there are lawyers in, in, uh, in the country who pretty much specialize in doing um, correctional law dealing with parole and issues that arise from parole, both at the provincial level and federal level. And uh, when I, if I'm contacted, I've tended to refer to them because there's a, a level of specialization. Sure. And there are lawyers frequently who practice in the Kingston area or in Toronto where they, they will develop, as I say, a particular skill set for this. Um, and, and I defer to them because uh, I think they're the ones in the best position to do the best job. you got a couple of minutes left. I want to talk about what if here for just a second, Jeff. And in the unlikely event, and I think it's highly unlikely, that, uh, that they decide to do this, is there a process? They don't just say, okay, uh, you can start. Is there, is there a, a way to ease into the parole system, day parole, work permits, anything like that? Um, the concept of, of day parole is normally you're eligible to get day parole three years before your first parole eligibility date. And how it would work is there's a series of escorted passes into the community, and then you can proceed to potentially unescorted passes into the community and ultimately build towards full parole. I know about that because many years ago, Bill, um, I did a, a faint hope clause case 
that's one where uh, it would be open for an individual serving a sentence of life, no parole for 25 for first-degree murder, could apply to have that parole eligibility time reduced. And there was a hearing process with the jury to be able to decide it, and I did one out in Brampton. And uh, in his case, I think the parole and eligibility was reduced from 25 years to, I think, 19 years. And that's where I learned about that process of um, prior to full parole, there is a form of, uh, of a series of steps, and escorted and then unescorted, and ultimately build towards full parole. And then the terms and conditions would be set by the parole board as to where the individual would be living and what kind of uh, uh, requirements they'd have to follow as conditions of parole. And my understanding is if, for instance, they decide, okay, he can go back to uh, Toronto, for instance, a facility there would have to accept him first, and they have that option, don't they? You say a facility there, I mean, it, there, are, there are, I think, residential, like half, effectively, like halfway houses or yeah. places such as that. Sure. And, on, and that exercise, though, again, boy, the, the attention that a case like this would attract um, would be just enormous. I mean, you'll recall for Carla Homolka, the newspaper publicity, you know, when she was located, I think, down in, uh, in uh, the Caribbean. Yeah, somewhere. Like yeah. that. Um, and then ultimately when she was, she relocated to Quebec and the publicity that that covered with, and she changed her name, changed her appearance to some extent, married, but it still got enormous scrutiny. That's her. Bernardo, I think, would be every bit as extreme, if not uh, more so. And so the challenge for those required to supervise him would be significant. I mean, the purely academic, theoretical exercise for him to try and be integrated back into Canadian society, Bill, how realistic is that? Which is, uh, I hope, the, uh, the the main factor that they have in their minds as they uh, make their, their determinations today. Jeff, thanks so much for the time today, for putting some clarity on this. Really appreciate it. Sure, and we'll see how things unfold, Bill. But as I say, I think uh, it's one that, that we won't have to worry about because I expect this parole application is going to be denied. Yeah, I agree, too. Thanks again, Jeff. Okay, bye. Jeff Manishin, a criminal lawyer and, of course, former Crown. I exit with Ross McBride now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Cannabis, uh, that's what's on everybody's minds. Obviously, it became legal at midnight tonight. And, uh, well, to suggest people are overjoyed is a massive understatement. I'm excited but I'm super excited for what's to come and involvement, like the evolution of cannabis. Uh, that was a, a theme that just about everybody seemed to be echoing. It's, it's interesting, though, because there's an awful lot of, uh, I guess, contradictory points on this. I know there was a survey that was released yesterday, a uh, national survey, that said that about 80% of Canadians, uh, this is going to have no impact. In other words, they're not going to say, well, I never did that stuff, and now I'm going to start doing it because it's legal. Uh, so are we overblowing this? I don't know. I guess time will tell. But it is obviously legal now across the country. And uh, I want to bring Jordan Sinclair into the program now. He's the vice president, of course, of communications with Canopy Growth Corporation. Uh, Jordan, first of all, thanks for, uh, for joining us. Good to have you with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's such a big day. So well, thanks for making the time. It, well, it is, and, and we're going to cover both the legal aspects, and we've done that over the last. But what I want to talk to you about, Jordan, is the business uh, case for this. Uh, this is legal right now, which means this is, uh, as uh, there's, there's competition, there's, there's going to be growth here, there's going to be job opportunities. Let's talk a little bit about, about what's going to be happening now. Sure, yeah, where to start. Uh, so, I mean, on, the, on the, the economic opportunity front, this is a massive day for Canada. Uh, I woke up this morning and someone had sent me a text message to say that they had ordered uh, the 30,000th order already through the Ontario Cannabis Store's online website. To put that into, into context, it took us five years to get one million orders out the door in the medical market. And if that, that 30,000 in six hours pace keeps up, 
it would take eight days to equal it in on just in Ontario. So it, it's a monstrous shot in the arm for you know the amount of capacity, the amount of sales that we're going to be able to make, and that translates directly into the amount of jobs and the amount of economic investment that we have to make into in the communities. Uh, I'm standing in a facility where we've put in over three hundred million dollars of investment in the last five years. I, I was talking to somebody over the weekend uh, who wanted to invest in this, and uh, actually she went online. Uh, and said, oh, the stock, I think it went up, she said like 15 to 20% in the last, in the four hours from the first time that she looked at it. Uh, and that was in anticipation of this being legalized. This was last Saturday, and of course on Tuesday it became legal. Uh, th- this is, the, the financial ramifications for this are astounding, aren't they? They are, yeah. And I mean, every stock has got uh, different amounts of volatility. I think what you're going to see in the long term uh, is a lot of people come out of, of what people are calling, you know, sort of a, a bubble that seems to be forming in the industry. Um, but there are a number of businesses in Canada that have strong fundamentals that are building a real business. And, and I think that we're one of them and we're really proud of that. Um, but, you know, I think that the stock market is a way that the people can see themselves getting a, a little piece of this, this Canadian success story. Well, they're riding the wave, certainly, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, you have to be careful with that. You know, there, oh, sure. there are businesses out there that, who maybe don't have the fundamentals uh, and maybe aren't going to last in the long term. So be prudent in your investing. Um, but I think that it does it does present a very unique opportunity. It's not very often that you stand up a new industry from nothing. Uh, and there's, yeah, there's there's money to be made there on the investment side. If, if you know what you're doing, you pick the right company. Yeah, but there's always risk, and we just want people to know that. It's not like it's a mother load or anything. Uh, what about your particular situation and other companies like yours, Jordan? As I mentioned, you, you've been in the business now. You were in the medical marijuana uh, business, and, and now how do you morph into this, and how do you take advantage of the legalization now for recreational? Uh, a lot of this in Canada for us is, is about doing what we were already doing, but just doing it much bigger. So we've um, we've been growing cannabis in regulated facilities since 2014, uh, but now we're just doing it in many more of those facilities, and all of them are are much much larger. Uh, what will happen over the next year is you'll see a little bit of an evolution of the types of products that are available in the market. So we can start with uh, the bud and the oils and the capsules that were already available in the medical market, but over the next year we'll work at getting some other things done at scale. So edibles, concentrated products. Um, that'll be the big shift for us. Uh, but so far, it's just been about uh, scaling, getting big. Is, is the legalization that, that occurred uh, all-encompassing? I mean, you just mentioned about some of the other potential products here, edibles, et cetera, are, are, from a recreational standpoint. Are, are they on the market legally now, too? No, they're, they're not. So the government did... Uh, did put a lot of the product types out for one year. Uh, what they focused on really was the, the distribution, the production regulations, getting a bunch of these businesses online. But over the next year, they've got to come up with the regulations that allow us to really compete with the black market. You know, you mentioned that study that everyone's talking about. Uh, 79 or 80% of people are, are not going to change their consumption habits. I think largely that's a good thing. You know, that I think from a public health perspective, we don't want more people using... Uh, cannabis. What we want to do is transition people over into the to the the licit market from the illicit market. And that means we have to be able to compete on an even playing field. So if we can uh, also do those products, it'll make that uh, that job a lot easier. Can you, from a price standpoint, compete with the black market? 
I think we can. Yeah, I, I truly think that we can. And you can look on the on the various websites to see uh, the proof in the pudding there. You know, if you walk into a dispensary uh, in Hamilton, you know, the or in Toronto, um, the ones that were operating in the in the gray market or the black market, they were selling grams for very, very similar amounts that you can see on the Ontario cannabis store today. Uh, that's not the only thing that allows us a little bit of an advantage. I do think that people will pay a small premium for the peace of mind of knowing that you're getting a product from a reliable supply chain, uh, that you know the potency, uh, that there are some other value adds. But just on straight price, I do think that we can compete. Well, you and I have talked about that in the past, and, and uh, you know, for people that are buying it on the black market, uh, not suggesting that, that, that all people are selling it are, are you know, nefarious, but the fact of the matter is, is you don't know what you're getting because there were no quality standards, really. That's exactly it. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's probably overly simplistic to say every single gram of cannabis in the black market is supporting organized crime. You know, it's more, it's more nuanced than that. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not much smarter policy to regulate and to uh, put this into an actual industry uh, where society is, is benefiting rather than having to pay to enforce, um, you know, the, to pay to, to, to enforce the, the black market. How big can this get at this point? Uh, Jordan, you were just talking about expansion uh, into, into the recreational area, and, and we've talked in the past about I, I've already seen and talked with some people that are in, in the process of actually building plants right now to try to accommodate what they think is going to be a, the, the, the need, the, the growing need that's going to be happening on this. Is, is this an industry that's ready to explode now? It is, and uh, I promised myself I wouldn't talk about international opportunities until at least lunchtime. Um, so I, <laughs> so I it's it's lunchtime somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll start with Canada at least. Okay. You know, so there is there is a there is a lot more of a market opportunity in Canada. I do think that we can continue to get bigger as as a, our business and as an industry. You know, there's going to be all sorts of new and interesting businesses that pop up around this, and not just in cannabis. You know ancillary services, packaging, like all of these interesting things uh, can be perfected here in Canada and it can allow us to have a real uh, global leadership position. Oh, there I did. I talked about international. Uh, but the big, the big piece of the story here is, is still elsewhere, right? Like the, the European Union, Latin America, Asia Pacific, all of these are regions in the world that are clearly signaling that they want medical cannabis reform and they're all looking to companies like ours and to Canada uh, for the playbook. Yeah, we're, we're under the microscope here, aren't we? I know we're only the second country to, in, on a national level to, to do this, but we're the biggest. Uh, and and you got to figure places like the EU and others are going to be watching just how it develops there. Watching so closely. Uh, I, I've been on, just myself personally, Danish TV, South Korean, Japanese, Swedish, PBS, just all in the last 10 days. Uh, so the, there is no shortage of international media that's floating around in Canada today. Uh, to try and get a sense of, of what day one looks like. And then really, you know, the, the amount of data and the amount of public health information uh, that's being collected by the government and, and uh, by a bunch of different stakeholders will be able to refine these policies so that we can, we can set the blueprint for the rest of the world. Uh, an awful lot to talk about and a limited amount of time today, but uh, I know that uh, we'll uh, have more discussions going forward as this unfolds, Jordan. Thanks so much for taking time out of a busy day to uh, spend a little time with us today. Yeah, it is my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care, Jordan. Jordan Sinclair, Bye. Vice President of Communications with the Canopy Growth Corporation. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.